I don't know why we save these things for posterity, but we do. Okay, we're looking at, I'm just going to make a little adjustment here so this uh, carpet doesn't make this wobbly. There we go. We're looking at 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29, through chapter 17, verse 24. I don't know if you have that anywhere in notes or anything. 1 Kings chapter 16, beginning at verse 29. And our theme is living in the kingdom in dark times. Living in the kingdom in dark times. Now, um, I don't have time. I have lectures on Reformation in various uh, places, Scotland and Geneva and Germany and so on, which you go into the um, situation in the church and in the culture a bit uh, before the Reformation and so on. Uh, and those were dark times, but we don't have time in a, in a sermon or a short study to, to go through all that. Uh, but uh, almost all the time, uh, God's people are living in dark times. You always read these books like the crisis in the church. You know, that's always a little bit amusing. There's always a crisis in the church, <laughs> crying out loud. Uh, but sometimes it's worse than others, you might say. Um, but but uh, in our own time, it, it, and this is why I bring this up in a Reformation conference, uh, God's people are always, and sometimes it's more severe than usual, living in the kingdom in dark times. And I'm going to take you into a passage where that was true in the nation of Israel. Um, I'm going to drag you into 1 Kings. Uh, but but um, in our own time, we find that. These, these are dark times in the sense that persecution of, of Jesus' people is, is um, intense across our world, if you keep up with it at all. Uh, and then in our own situation, even though there may not be so severe, there's a certain, there's cultural baggage that keeps crumbing in on us, uh, dark baggage. Uh, we live in a time when uh, you don't discover truth. You shape your own Truth. It's called postmodernism, etc. We're not just supposed to acknowledge diversity, but we're supposed to support perversity uh, in in our culture. And of course, the idol that you're never supposed to be, uh, you're always supposed to worship, is the idol of tolerance and so on. So. Yeah, we have our own dark times and so on. So I want to take you into 1 Kings uh, 16.29 through chapter 17. This is a longer section. I want to read clear through it. Um, and uh, it was a dark time in the kingdom for God's true people then as well. Now, my own translation, uh, when, when uh, the Lord occurs in an Old Testament text and Lord is in small caps, that's an indication, as you probably know, that that's the covenant name of, of God. 
uh, often Yahweh, and I'm, I'm, I'm used to using Yahweh, so my translation does that. If that's not familiar to you, translate it back into your own terms of the Lord, but don't make an old dog learn new tricks uh, right here. Let me just go on and not have to catch myself. 1 Kings 16, verse 29. Now Ahab, son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in Yahweh's eyes more than all who were before him. Now it happened, was his walking in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, a trivial matter? It happened that he took as wife Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he erected an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah image. So Ahab did more to infuriate Yahweh, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who had been before him. In his days, Hiel the Bethelite rebuilt Jericho. At the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, he laid the foundation. At the cost of Sigub, his youngest, he set up its doors in line with the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by the hand of Joshua, the son of Nun. Then Elijah the Tishbite from the sojourners in Gilead said to Ahab, By the life of Yahweh, the God of Israel, before whom I stand, there will not be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go from here. And you shall turn yourself eastward, and you shall hide yourself by the brook Kirith, which is near the Jordan. And it shall be that you can drink from the brook and the ravens I've commanded to sustain you there. So he went and did according to Yahweh's word. He went and stayed by the brook Kirith, which is near the Jordan. And the ravens kept bringing him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. Then after some time the brook dried up, for there was no rain in the land. Then the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, Get up, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. See, I've commanded a widow woman there to sustain you. So he got up and went to Zarephath. Now he came to the entrance of the town, and why, there was a widow woman gathering wood. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a container for me to drink. When she went to get it, he called after her and said, Please bring along a piece of bread for me. Then she said, By the life of Yahweh your God, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And see, I'm gathering a couple pieces of wood, and I shall go and make it for myself and for my son, and we shall eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go, do as you say. Only make me a little cake first from it and bring it out to me. And for you and your son, you can make something afterwards for... Here's what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will never come to an end, and the jug of oil will never be empty until the day Yahweh gives rain upon the face of the ground. And she went and did as Elijah had said, and she ate. He and she and her household for days. The jar of flour did not come to an end, and the jug of oil was not empty, according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by the hand of Elijah. Now it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness became very severe to the point that there was no breath left in him. 
And she said to Elijah, What connection must I have with you, O man of God? You've come to me to make known my iniquity and to put my son to death. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her lap and brought him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he called out to Yahweh and said, O Yahweh, my God, is it even upon this widow with whom I'm sojourning that you have brought disaster by putting her son to death? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times, and he called out to Yahweh and said, Yahweh, my God, please let the life of this child be restored to him. And Yahweh listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child was restored to him, and he came to life. Then Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said to her, See, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of Yahweh in your mouth is reliable. Now it's about September 5th, 1698. And uh, they heard that the Tsar had returned. Peter the Great had been out of Russia into the West, Western Europe to learn about technological advances and so on and how to build ships and all of that. And word went out that Peter was back, all six feet, seven inches of him. Uh, and and uh, the, the boyers and the groupies gathered round to welcome him. And after all the greetings and so on, uh, Peter suddenly brandished uh, a uh, sharp barber's razor and proceeded to hack off the beards of all the groupies there. Uh, no one uh, giving Peter's impressive size and strength uh, raised a protest, uh, but there were nicks and so on, and there were chins and jars that were naked after that that had never been so uh, before. In fact, some of them held that shaving was a mortal sin. But you see, Peter had been to the West, and he was convinced that Russia was ridiculed and that the tradition and mores were holding Russia back, and so he decided to make a statement, uh, as we say. So the close shave was a clear sign. With Peter, Russia was entering a whole new era. There was a cultural shift uh, involved. Well, that's kind of what you have in 1 Kings 16, 29 to 34. You have a huge change in Israel, maybe about 870 B.C., stemming kind of from a marriage. King Ahab married Jezebel, who was a Phoenician princess from Tyre and Sidon and so on. She had an evangelistic zeal for her god Baal and for Baal worship, and she sought to impose Baal worship in Israel. And Ahab was apparently kind of a wimp. You can see it in verses 32 and 34. He worshiped Baal, he erected an altar for Baal, he made an Asherah image, and so on. And uh, Jezebel seemed to prefer death for those who stood against her. You can see some of that in chapter 18. Um, so uh, quite a problem in Israel for faithful believers. Um, it seemed like Antichrist had arrived ahead of schedule in Israel. Um, but you might say, well, 
But weren't things messed up from the beginning of the northern kingdom? We see we're in a divided kingdom. There's Israel, the ten northern tribes. Judah's the southern two tribes. So Israel, the ten northern tribes that we're concerned with, weren't they messed up from, from the start after the division after Solomon? Yes. Yes, there was Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and so on. And he had those uh, two calves, golden calves and so on, that he erected for the worship of Israel. It was a kind of a syncretism, uh, mixing the worship of Yahweh probably with these, this calf and fertility worship and so on. Now, but there was a difference. Uh, if Without going into detail, if I could put it like this, Jeroboam's paganism was like drinking polluted water. Ahab and Jezebel's was like sucking raw sewage. It was much, much worse, this Baal crisis. And so the text suggests, though, that in very dark times, we can still see God clearly. And it tells us what you need to remember when you live in the kingdom in very dark times. You remember to, need to remember some matters about your God. So here we go back to the doctrine of God again. So what's it say to us? Well, the text says, notice how prepared God is. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now, there's a mistake here that you have to watch. We, we tend to shut down at the end of a chapter, and then we, at the beginning of another chapter, we tend to think, oh, this is something new. No, no, you, you have to ignore that blank space between chapter 16 and 17 and go right into 17, verse 1. Then Elijah the Tishbite from the sojourners in Gilead said to Ahab, by the life of Yahweh, the God of Israel, before whom I stand, there will not be dew nor rain these years except by my word. How prepared God is. Um, notice the suddenness of Elijah's appearance. You have all this about Ahab and Jezebel and so on, and then bang, in 17.1, there's Elijah. He's just there. You've never heard, well, you've heard of him before in Sunday school and so on, but in the text, you've never heard of Elijah before. He's just there. There's no warm-up. There are no intros. There are no details, there's no bio, there's not what his wife's name is or his dear little boy Jimmy or nothing like that, no hobby. He's just there. Suddenly, eyeball to eyeball with Ahab. Now, notice the significance of Elijah's words. When he says there'll be do, no dew nor rain, uh, these years except by my word. Now, what, what's going on there? Well, part of that is a judgment on Ahab and on Israel for falling away from Yahweh, for their unfaithfulness. And um, uh, Leviticus, uh, or Deuteronomy chapter 11, and Deuteronomy chapter 28 had mentioned that's part of the curses of the covenant, that you're unfaithful, then the Lord will hold back rain, etc. Uh, there'll be famine and that, that sort of thing. So that's part of what's involved. It's a judgment. But it's also a put down on Baal. There'll be no dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, why should we care about that? Well, you see, Baal, who was Jezebel's, God and so on. Baal in, in the mythology was a fertility god. 
was a God of thunder and lightning and rain and causing fertility in animals and people and so on. Uh, so this, this sort of thing, uh, rain, dew, etc., uh, this was Baal's specialty. That was his major in university, as it were. And now, and now uh, Yahweh is saying through Elijah, Ahab, I want you to know, I'm going to shut Baal's faucet off. He's not going to be able to produce what he said to produce. I'm going to show you that Baal is a non-god who can't fight his way out of a wet paper bag. Uh, it's an assault on, on Baal's specialty and so on. And, and uh, so um, that's, that's what's part of what's going on here. He's gonna, God's going to show that Baal is a non-entity and so on by lack of rain and all of that. Now, what's this got to do with us? Well, it's just this whole thing. How prepared God is. Do you see the solace in this scene in verse 17, verse 1? Uh, the days are evil, 16, 29 to 34, and the defense is ready, 17, 1. It says, Ronald Wallace says in one of his books, don't despair when you see evil achieving spectacular success, for you can be sure that God in unexpected places has already prepared his counter-movement. And there's Elijah. Um, it's sort of like, uh, to try to help you to, to grasp the principle here, uh, sort of like... Um, uh, a baseball anecdote that comes from, I don't know, late, very late 1800s. Uh, there was a fellow who was a great hitter by the name of Pete Browning. Um, and and uh, he was playing, I think, for a Louisville t team. Uh, and uh, John McGraw, I forget what team John McGraw was playing with. I know he managed other teams later. But John McGraw was a third baseman and played for another team. But McGraw was a bit of a problem because you know, you know the rule in baseball. If you have less than two outs and there's a runner on base, like, say, third base, and there's a fly ball hit to the outfield, and the outfielder catches it, that can be a sacrifice fly if the runner is tagging up until the catch is made, and then he can light out for the next base, say home, and if he gets there, the safe, he scores. Well, <clears throat> John McGraw had a habit that when this occurred in that kind of a situation, he would, as he was there at third base, um, hook his finger under the belt of the runner who was tagging up. Um, and, and then, uh, when the runner took off, he was <laughs> delayed. Now that have, uh, that brought two results. Either either when he got loose from McGraw and went for home, he was thrown out, or he got mad at McGraw and they had a brawl. Um, one of those two things. Now Pete Browning, on one occasion though, was on third base, and uh, there were were not two out, less than two outs, and there was a a fly hit to the outfield. Browning tagged up and so on. McGraw hooked his finger under his belt. But you see, Pete Browning had surreptitiously, see, I mean secretly, uh, un unbuckled his belt. 
So when the catch was made, he took off for home, and McGraw was there on third base holding Browning's belt, <laughs> while Pete Browning ran home holding his pants up. Well, that's, that's just the point. You see how prepared he was. He had taken account of that. Now that's what the Lord is trying to teach us here. You will see dark times. You will see evil perhaps reaching its apex. But God has not been caught napping. He knows the next step, how prepared God is. Now secondly, notice how creative God is. Verses 2 through 16, chapter 17, verses 2 through 16. Now, the Lord tells... Um, uh, Elijah to go into hiding by the brook Kirith, which is uh, east of the Jordan River. And Elijah uh, does so. Now, that may have been partly for protection from uh, any um, uh, assault by Ahab or Jezebel or their cronies. Uh, that could be. But mainly it was uh, as a place to provide for uh, uh, Elijah. Uh, and I think we have to say th this provision for Elijah is not something that uh, we can say, oh, if we're in desperate times, uh, the Lord will provide for me as he did for Elijah. No, I don't think this is for every Tom, Dick, Heather, and Jane, and Harry, and so on. This is a provision that was for Elijah particularly. Uh, the Lord does give us other assurances in other texts, but this was just for Elijah and and um, uh, it it um, uh, it may signify there may be more signified here than meets the eye. That is, one writer says, you know, Elijah was the bearer of God's word to his people, and now God is removing Elijah from the midst of Israel. What's that signify? It signifies the judgment of Yahweh in taking his word away from an unfaithful people. That may be what's going on here in part. But there's more than that, and I think we ought to notice it, and that's why I've called this, how, notice how creative God is. Um, simply looking at how God sustained Elijah, I think here is, is helpful. Notice... Verse 4, the ravens. I've commanded the ravens to, to sustain you there. <laughs> Who in the world would have thought of that? How creative God is. Don't you see it? Now, don't get all soppy and gooey over this. And don't, don't come on with, oh, isn't that lovely, that kind of response. No. What did he get? He got roadkill for supper. <laughs> They were dirty birds. See Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. Ravens were technically unclean for Israel, and yet God is using them to sustain his servant. Now, one could maybe imagine, this is in the margin of a text, maybe we don't know that the Lord actually said it, obviously, but would it be unusual for him to tell Elijah Whatever they bring you, cook it very, very well. Uh, now this, but it did sustain him, didn't it? Who would have thought of that? Isn't that a twist, just like Yahweh? 
Isn't he such an interesting, fascinating God? Now, then there's another element, though, beside the ravens. There's the widow, verse 9. <laughs> so the brook dries up, verse 7. No rain, the brook dries up. What's going to happen? Well, go to Zarephath, the Lord says, that belongs to Zidon. I've commanded a widow woman there to sustain you. A what? Do you understand what widow meant in that time? It meant P-O-V-E-R-T-Y. Widows didn't have means. I mean, they were a widow unless they had family and so on to sustain them and so on. It, it, It was pretty dire. Um, they didn't. They didn't open up, for instance, kitty care in their homes to kind of get some income. They didn't become a receptionist at the local dental clinic, and that's why they know widowhood was kind of a dead end street. So it's a little bit weird to have Yahweh saying, "I've commanded a widow woman there to sustain you." That doesn't sound real auspicious, necessarily, does it? So. Um, that's sort of like saying now there's a bankrupt fellow down the street who's going to help you get out of debt, that sort of thing. <laughs> but and notice what happens, though. We'll come back to some other detail. Notice what happens in verse 14. She believes Yahweh's promise, doesn't she? That the jar of flour will never come to an end and a jug of oil will never be empty until the day Yahweh gives rain upon the face of the ground. She believes Yahweh's promise, and they have enough oil and flour every day to make some pancakes. And so they are sustained. There's nothing, it seems, that God cannot bend to His use. Ravens or widows? Marvelous. I thought it was a marvelous twist when I read about <coughs> uh, Teddy Roosevelt when he was police commissioner in New York City. This would have been about 1899 or so. And uh, there was quite a furor among the, the Jewish populations because, because there was a fellow by the name of Rector Allwart who was coming over from Germany, and he was a vicious anti-Semitic speaker stirring up all sort of uh, anti-Semitic sentiment and so on. And the Jews uh, wanted Roosevelt to keep him from coming in. Well, he couldn't do that. But, But Teddy did the next best thing. He had assigned 40 very large, very unhappy Jewish cops to serve as his bodyguard while he was there in New York. And when I read that, I thought, isn't that creative? Isn't that marvelous? It tended to um, suppress uh, all his anti-Semitic tirades. Well, what a great move that was. And so here, See how delightful and resourceful God is. And maybe you perhaps forget that in dark times. Shouldn't the sight of this text here force you to praise the God who uses dirty birds and hopeless widows 
And even Presbyterians should throw up their hands and say with the prophet Micah, who is a God like you? Now I want you to notice a third matter. And uh, that's in verses 15 and 16, and then 17 and 18. Notice how terrifying God is. How terrifying God is. Now this might be something we'd rather not remember in dark times, uh, but it's here and we should notice it. Notice the sequence in the text. So in verses 15 and 16, you have them enjoying sufficient sustenance day by day as there's always a little bit of oil and, and a little bit of flour for whatever the daily needs are. And then in verse 17, now it came to pass, or came about, came about after these things. There's something about that sequence. Let's just review the text. Let's go back to verse 10. Starts with desperation, doesn't it? Verses 10 to 12. This widow is reduced to getting a couple pieces of wood for literally their last supper. That's desperation. Then notice promise in verses 13 and 14. And you notice that the promise Elijah gave her in verse 14 was really a call to conversion. Here's what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. This woman's in Zarephath. That belongs to Sidon. That's in Phoenicia. That's Jezebel's home stomping ground. This is Pagansville. And he's calling her to trust the God of Israel and to lean on his word. And she believes a naked promise. And then the benefit, that's verses 15 and 16, isn't it? You can almost imagine maybe she went in to the pantry every day humming, God is so good, He's so good to me. And then, sort of like the Israelites in Exodus 16 when they went out morning by morning to gather the manna. But then verses 17 and 18 come and you have reversal. And somehow those words, it came about after these things, tend to sound ominous. And the son of the woman is ill and apparently dies. And she is sure that Elijah has come in order to bring some kind of judgment for her sins and so on. After these things. Things, things can, you know, I hope you see that sequence between 15 and 16 and 17 and 18. Things can sometimes, you know, I suppose northerners had coined the expression, right? It went south, they say. <laughs> uh, well, that they do. Thing, things turn sour, don't they? And things can go along fairly well, and then it's an after these things, and it all seems to go to muck. Um, it was that way in the, uh, I don't know if uh, you remember any of you, the 1960 World Series between the Pittsburgh Pirates and the New York Yankees. It was game seven. And the Yankees were ahead seven to four. And uh, it was the last of the eighth and Pittsburgh was coming to bat. The Yankees had to get six more outs and they would win the World Series. And uh, first batter for Pittsburgh got a single. He's on first base. The second batter, Bill Verdon, hit a ground ball to shortstop. Ah, double play. 
Uh, but just before the ball reached the shortstop, Tony Kubek, it hit a clod of dirt or something and skidded up and hit Tony Kubek in the throat and he went down. His throat started to swell. He had trouble breathing. Well, every, everyone was safe, so on. Well, uh, after order was restored and a substitute came in, uh, Pittsburgh uh, got a three-run homer later in that inning, and they were ahead then 9-7. to seven. In the top of the ninth, the Yankees come back and tie it up 9-9, nine to nine, but perhaps you remember if you were ever in Pittsburgh that in the bottom of the ninth, Bill Mazeroski, the second baseman, hit a home run. And, and, and uh, uh, weak hitting is, uh, uh, Pittsburgh won the World Series. But it goes back to that ground ball and popping up and knocking Quebec in the throat. And it was as if it was just a hinge in the whole game, and everything turned sour after that. It was, well, sometimes there are hinges, aren't there, in, in believing experience. And you can go along, and, and then all of a sudden, uh, you have this marvelous provision, 15 to 16, followed by this staggering devastation in 17 to 18. And notice that this did not happen to a mature believer. It happened to a new convert. She went from the heights of God's goodness to the pit of his mysteries. Strange twists of God's ways. God is good. And God is terrifying. And yet, and yet, isn't there a kindness in this? What do I mean by that? Well, the Scripture's telling you that this can happen. It's laying it out for you. It's saying this can happen to the Lord's people. Isn't that kind to know that? So that you don't get blindsided, it, it seems to me. I, the thing that I always um, think about is if someone would, would uh, want to buy... Uh, my 1997 Ford Ranger pickup. Uh, the red paint's in fairly good condition. Um, but uh, if someone did, I would have to say to them, and you can imagine a fellow telling his wife that he was thinking of doing this, and she would say, well, why would you want to buy a pickup like that? And so on. Uh, well, uh, see, if he wanted to, I would have to say now, now, my pickup doesn't, the, the gas gauge doesn't work, okay? Um, the, the gear shift rattles, it's a, it's a stick shift, um, and it shouldn't bother you much, but if you listen to it, it'll, it'll tend to bother you. <laughs> the, the radio doesn't turn off. You're supposed to be able to punch that button, and it stays in, and the radio goes off, but you just have to turn the volume down. It's on all the time. <laughs> If, the, if you don't want the radio on. Um, the, the check engine light's on all the time. Doesn't mean a thing. You can, you can take it to the, to the dealership or any other place and they'll get it to go off and then uh, 18, 20 hours later it comes back on and it just stays on. About um, two or three weeks ago the, brake, the check engine light went off. 
and it was off for maybe a day and a half, and I got alarmed and worried. But it, it came back on, it came back on, um, and so on. And, and uh, I would have to tell you, very rarely the horn might not work, but I can show you where the connection is underneath by the left fender and so on under there. And, and uh, you just have to kind of file the connection up and, and it'll work again and so on. That, now, now somebody might, a wife might say to her husband, why on earth do you want to buy something that, that's got all those problems with it? And he would say, of course, yeah, but Davis has told me everything that's wrong with it. I can trust a guy like that. And can't you trust a God who doesn't hide from you the crud that you may have to walk through? Jesus never puts it in small print or in a footnote. It's always right out there. Um, how terrifying God is. He can be. Now then, fourthly, notice that the text says how victorious God is. And here we look at verses 19 to 24. And so, now, is Yahweh going to be helpless in the face of death? Baal, allegedly, in the mythology, uh, pagan mythology, was. He died every year, as it were, and so on. But, but uh, is death going to stymie Yahweh? And you notice what Elijah does in verse 20. You notice his prayer. And uh, notice how sympathetically, in verse 20, Elijah prays. Notice how he takes up the widow's case, and how sympathetic he is to her, and how he advocates for her. And then in verse 21, notice... Notice the simplicity of his prayer. Oh, I know there's this acted element in which he stretches himself on the child, but notice the simplicity especially. Yahweh my God, verse 21, please let the life of this child be restored to him. You see that Elijah, is, is, we usually think of him as a great prophet, but he doesn't have any magic abracadabra. He doesn't have any super duper resource that he can 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 call upon. There's no sensational powers. He's reduced to prayer for begging Yahweh for help. And notice too that the restoration of this woman's son to life was necessary. Necessary. You remember back in verse 14 when the promise was to her and her son that Yahweh would preserve them with, with flour and, and oil and so on. That was a promise that he would preserve them. And now that he dies, it's as if Yahweh's going back on his word. So this is a very necessary thing. And, and uh, in verse uh, 24, uh, when, when he restores the child alive to his mother, she says, now I know that you are a man of God and the word of Yahweh in your mouth is reliable. And some translations have truth, but I think the idea there is reliable. He really has kept his promise, hasn't he? Okay, so this was necessary. But now, this episode, what's it mean to teach Israel and what does it mean to teach us? Well, I think this episode is a sign passage. 
What would this communicate to believing Israel when they heard this story? It would tell them, wouldn't it, that Yahweh has power over death for his people. Now, it's not necessarily a great statement, but there's an instance here that shows Yahweh has power over death. In other words, death is not the last word for Yahweh's servants. He's able to pluck them out of death's clutches when he wants. How victorious God is. Hmm. Now, this is sort of like the, the miracle, some of the miracles of Jesus. Do you remember that raising uh, Jairus' daughter to life, Mark 5, 35 to 43? Jesus, you know, took along three of his disciples and the little girl's parents, took them back. He had to, wanted to have witnesses there. And he raised her up and brought her back to life. Now, this wasn't resurrection life. He restored her. She was dead, and he restored her to life. Um, she would die again eventually, you know. Only her parents would probably this time precede her in death. But Jairus' daughter eventually died again and is buried somewhere in Galilee, I suppose. But you see what that moment indicated. As if it's saying to Jesus' people, you may be dead, but you see, the episode of Jairus' daughter shows you are not beyond the sound of Jesus' voice, and you are not beyond the reach of Jesus' hand. Jesus has power over that realm of death. And that's a sign episode of it. It's not like the resurrection narratives in Matthew 28 and Mark 16 and Luke 24 and John 20, etc. But it's a sign. And sometimes signs are very potent, aren't they? Of a Savior who says in Revelation 1, I have the keys of death and Hades. That realm is in my control. Oh, how victorious God is. And... Uh, how sometimes we need that assurance. Uh, James Stewart, who was a Scottish preacher in the 20th century, told a story uh, connected to the old story of Faust. Uh, and Faust gambled with his soul, and he said an artist painted a picture of that. It was a game of chess, Faust at one side and Satan on the other. And the game is almost over. Faust has only a few pieces left, a king, a knight, and one or two pawns. And on his face, there's this look of blank despair because he's gambled his soul. While at the other side of the table, the devil leers as he anticipates triumph. And he says many of the many uh, uh, chess players has looked at that picture and agreed that the, the situation is hopeless, it's checkmate. But one day in the picture gallery where this was hanging, a great master of the game stood gazing at the picture. He was fascinated by this look of utter despair on Faust's face. And his gaze then went to the pieces on the board. He just stared at them absorbed. Other visitors came to the gallery and went and so on, but there was this fellow just looking there at that chessboard and so on. And suddenly after some time, the gallery was rent with a cry. It's a lie! The king and the knight 
have another move. Well, that's sort of the effect that a sign passage like this ought to have on you. The king has another move. He holds the keys of death and of Hades. How victorious God is. Or as Jesus, as Jesus put it in John 14, 19, because I live, you too will live. So, the days may be evil more than ever before, but God is there defending His cause, demonstrating His creativity, leading His servants' hearts through heart-wrenching troubles, and assuring of life in the face of death. Let us pray. Thank you, O Lord, that we are strongly held. Thank you that you are not a hired hand who runs away when trouble comes, but you are a shepherd who grips us fast, even in the dark times of the kingdom. And for this we praise you. Amen. We want to uh, thank Alan for playing this morning. We appreciate it, Alan. Leading us in those, uh, those songs. And thank you to uh, Dr. Davis for your, uh, your word and preaching of God's word. So. We designed this intentionally to uh, to have you use your morning so that the afternoons, um, the, the honey-do list still can get done today, and perhaps uh, a little bit of college football can be watched. But uh, we also want to invite you back uh, tomorrow morning, uh, 9.45. Again, I know not all of you are uh, members here, but uh, you still can come uh, if you'd like to. I uh, don't tell you pastors, but you're still welcome to, to come unless you are the pastor. Um, that might be problematic, but... Uh, we're, uh, we're grateful to have many guests and, and friends and would love for you to, to come back and enjoy uh, tomorrow morning for Sunday school and then uh, Sunday morning worship at 11 a.m. And then 6 p.m. we're going to join together with Northwest Georgia Presbytery, the Presbytery we belong to, and their churches. And we're going to have a joint worship service at Midway Presbyterian, uh, just about, I don't know, 30 minutes from here, 20 minutes from here, not too far. But um, we'll, we'll gather together there at 6 p.m. where Dr. Davis will be preaching there as well. So continue in prayer for, for Dr. Davis as he uh, meditates and uh, prepares those messages for us tomorrow. But we look forward to a, a wonderful, glorious day. But let me close this in prayer. Our grace to God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this time. Lord, we thank you for your word, for your truth, these things that took place so many years ago, thousands of years ago, Lord, are, are more relevant to us than the, the morning news uh, because it is your word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we thank you for bringing through it, uh, Lord, the comfort of it, of your truths and, and the conviction of it, O oh Lord, of how we are to, to live in light of it. And so, Lord, we pray as we 
think about these messages. Would we meditate upon it this day? Lord, would it have us be that much more prepared tomorrow to, uh, to enter into your house with the Lord's people to worship and praise you, the great God and King, the great Yahweh of heaven and earth. We praise you. In Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all. What translation do you have? Oh, that's just my own. I wrote it out. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Now, if I have to work with a passage, I find if I have to, if I write out the translation, why it helps me get into the passage and so on. And so I, and I usually just use it since I've been used to working with it. Yeah. I don't always do it, but lots of times I do. Yeah. So good. I don't want to hide you up, but thank you for your messages and thank you for your witness. Thank you. Oh, sure. Sure. You bet. Busy but well. Oh, thank you. So. Hi. Thank you for those good words. Oh, yeah. I forgot. Now, immediately when somebody says, "Mine said, Ranger." 